0: Hi, I'm sitting here with the lovely Shalina.
1: And I'm sitting here with the lovely Nekka.
0: Welcome to What's Your Safe Word?
1: A podcast about declarations of resistance by us, Women at the Center. So, what are you drinking today, Necca?
0: Today, I am drinking Oyster Bay uh, Chardonnay 2018 Marlborough, and it's from New Zealand. And I'm very, very excited because I've been having a crush for not just the country, but for their prime minister, Jacinda Arden. And I was thinking if, if I ever leave Canada to live somewhere else, I think it will be New Zealand. Oh. So I went into, I, yeah, I went into the, the LCBO and there it was. And I thought, Oyster Bay, I'm going to do it. It's a Chardonnay. So that's my, my, my one for the day.
1: Amazing. New- I am drinking Sandbanks Riesling um, and it's got like a arrow to the beach and um, <laughs> I'm excited to drink this. I'm super excited. I actually already had a little taste um, at my birthday last week, which I'll talk about it in a second. So I am I already have a little teaser of what it tastes like.
0: <laughs> Very nice. Amanda, what about you? What are you drinking
1: today? I'm drinking Enniskillen's Late Autumn Riesling. It's a staple in our house, and I really, really like it.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that.
1: And the reason that we're all drinking different things is because we're doing this podcast over Zoom because COVID 19 is still happening in this world. Um, so, we're all <laughs> so we're all practicing physical distancing, um, but staying very socially together. Connected.
0: Yes, Connected. I like that. That's I right. Like that. Yes.
1: Um, shall we do our check-in, NECA? I think
0: we shall, I think we shall, because I I have a lot to get off my chest. But, why don't you start?
1: Okay, I, we'll start with our mental noise like we usually do to get it off of our mind. My <laughs> mental noise might be the same as yours, so maybe we can just talk about it together, I'm not very sure. Um, my mental noise is about Ahmaud Arbery, Arbery, is that how you say yeah. it?
0: Aubrey. Aubrey.
1: Aubrey. Uh, so he was the black man that was killed in Georgia while he was running on a on a run, like on a jog, like people do every single day outside. He was literally running in a neighborhood for exercise, and in his
0: was, in his neighborhood.
1: In his neighborhood, and he was hunted down by three white supremacists uh, with fucking oh. <laughs> do you know what? Do you know what's so funny is? I forgot that we could swear on this episode or on this (laughs) podcast, um, with three fucking huge guns. And like, I, I, I saw the video, so I didn't want to see the video. Um, it just came on my screen, um, when I was scrolling through Instagram and it was super triggering. And that's to me as a white woman. So like, I can't even explain, I can't even begin to understand what it's like for um, black folks to watch that. Um, But I, I have been heartbroken and disgusted and angry and like, Oh, there are no words for all of these things that are going on. And not just to this Black man, this isn't happening in a vacuum, this isn't an isolated incident, but this is honestly happening all over, mostly America, but you know, all over North America. And this has definitely been my mental noise this week.
0: This has been my mental noise this week. We did a, a check-in on Wednesday with the, the, the whole team, um, as we do, and we, we did it pre-COVID, we've been doing it during COVID. And I was telling my, the team that I'm, I'm not one, they all know me, I'm not one to be um, melancholic or depressive. I, I, don't, I don't get there. And I, I've, I've pri- I pride myself on being able to hold multiple people's traumas and not have it uh, affect, affect me. Mm-hmm. But when I saw the video, and I didn't, like you, Shani, I didn't want to watch it. I I, I didn't want to watch it because I I knew it would be the the straw that breaks this camel's back. And yeah, it broke. And watching it made me feel so desperately desolate. I I don't know how to put it. I I felt alone. I felt that the world was filled with disgusting people who should not be who could not be human, right? Because I I'm I am human and I could not in my wildest imagination conceive of a of a, a reason, a time that I would I neck would do something like this. I am human and I couldn't understand how another person who claims to be human could then do something like this and and i I, i've watched sort of american um anti-black racism boil i lived in the uk i saw it happen in the uk it happens in canada but the the this one i I don't know why this one got to me the way it did i i think covid has a lot to do with it but i was just so paralyzed (laughs) with anger and disappointment and struggling to not let my my negative emotions spill over at other people like I, did, I didn't want to get into a situation where i then turned against white people because my staff i i, I have beautiful brilliant white women who i work with as accomplices I have friends who I, you know, sat I sat on boards with who were white. I didn't want to then sort of ascribe to that racial um, racial hatred. I I I couldn't let myself, but I didn't know where to put it. <laughs> Did I? Didn't know where to put it. And the fact that these two men, father and son, had killed a young black boy jogging, minding his own business, jogging. They hunted him. It was like hunting fucking deer. Mm-hmm. And I, do, I don't believe in animal cruelty. I, but it was like hunting. There were three of them when and one of them actually recorded it.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: William yeah. Bryan. Yeah. Was recording it. And I just, I was so out of my out of discombobulated, I think is the word. Yeah. But, but, um, and in talking to my children, are my sort of my base right (laughs) my war council they're my base listening to them again have nothing to say there is no way to bring you down from all of this it just set me on a tangent that i've i've never been in before i've never been in and my anger still has not subsided and yes they these two men have been arrested but what's going to happen how do you say how do you how do you give her back how do you give the mother back her son the father back his son he's my son's age oh he he was he was 20 and today i wrote today was his birthday
1: yeah yeah
0: today was his birthday and so i i've just been sitting with a mental noise of anti-black racism and on top of that is really I, i sent i sent something out this morning to my, not just the team, but everybody, every white person on my list, on my, my, my contact, because my whole thing is I shouldn't be, it shouldn't be just black people outraged. Yeah. I wanted everybody to be outraged because this is not, this is a human rights violation. And if you consider yourself a human being, then you need to fucking step up and do something. You can't just sit back and say it's happening to somebody. You you cannot. You can't just sit back because. Oh, yeah. It, it's been a hard week. It's been a hard week, hard yep. mental noise, and I'm I'm still struggling. I honestly I'm still struggling.
1: Yeah, and I think that, like as you say, that you've sent it out to every white person on your list. I think that's what's so important because the 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 only reason that these two men, their names are Gregory and Travis McMichael, were even brought to any type of accountability was because of Black social media. Like, explicitly, um, they had uh, Sean King, who has a podcast and is um, a very large um, advocate for Black rights and uh, Black Lives Matters and stuff like that, and he he's the one that kind of put it out there and then a whole bunch of you know uh, I know the law firm that also took them on was like a human rights law firm and stuff like that and so black social media is what like made this arrest happen because this happened two months ago and no one yeah the police and the county didn't do anything about it and so it it was on the backs of black folks mm-hmm. for their own justice for like you know one of their own and so like i think that's what's so fucked up mm-hmm. i i think like the work never stops <laughs> for for black bodies and i think especially um i mean thank goodness that something came from it and a lot of people because when it did start getting shared a lot a lot more people were sharing it and celebrities and stuff like that that always get on the bandwagon but I think that um, they also did a protest, like straight to their house, uh, the house of the, the murderers. And uh, I think that was really, really powerful as well. So, yeah.
0: It's interesting that you, 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 you say it in terms of, to me, it's about if you consider yourself a human being and if you do not feel outrage at what is going on, then I don't consider you a human being. Yeah. If you consider yourself fair-minded and justice motivated and you are not outraged, then I don't see you as fair-minded and justice motivated. If you consider yourself um, somebody who seeks accountability and you don't feel that these men need to be held accountable, then I don't see you. I don't see you as somebody who is, you know, seeking accountability and and just to broaden it a little bit this is this is uh this is a problem of white supremacy yeah problem about white men with guns who feel that they have a right to go and hunt and it's it's like a continuation of jim crow it's a continue the the, the father is 62 yes and as i was thinking about it i was talking to christian my daughter about this that this man probably grew up at a time when black people were being lynched. And he was one of these people, you know, five, six, who was at the fucking picnic where they would they would hang a black man, put a tie around him and set him alight, and everybody would then go and have a this man grew up in that generation. And anybody in 2020 who is not fucking outraged by this type of human rights violation then I really think you need to question whether you are part of the human race.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. So my, my, I was really happy that everybody that I sent it to was indignant. I have a, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful friend, Kerry Zarnett, who, you know, I, I was on the Baby Glen board with her. Kerry was so outraged. This lovely little white Jewish woman was so outraged and the, the the text she was sending made me feel that was what started bringing me down, right? Bringing me back was the responses I was getting from people who were allies. My my friend Tony Michelangelo, who is you know this white, you know the man, right? And he's a very wealthy. He's very wealthy, but he was so outraged, and I thought, okay, people get it, but what are we doing? What are we now doing? Having yeah. got what what type of advocacy? we're doing are you waiting until it's somebody that you know that it's alexander then then you're gonna get no you you need to feel outraged so yeah i started off the week feeling horrible and here i am ending the week feeling a lot better because i know that there are you know allies right and accomplices from all races who are as outraged as i am so that that's That's a good thing.
1: Yep. Yep. Uh, I don't know how to move on from that. Uh, and the most ironic thing, I guess that (laughs) is that if we like move to our success, what I was going to say was, um, I started like a new schedule for myself because I think like during COVID I've lost (laughs) like a schedule and, I think I've, like, stopped doing things um, and just focusing on, like, getting certain things done or work or whatever and, like, not actually, like, being active and, like, doing things. So, anyway, I started a schedule where um, I take a walk every morning, like, in my neighborhood and I think that's why it's so ironic is that my, like, success is the fact that I can walk around in my neighborhood and no one's going to hunt me down and that's so fucked up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to leave that there. <laughs> Go ahead, Necco. What's your success this week?
0: <laughs> my success is that I um, I used to, I did art at school when I was little as an A-level. And um, for all you people who don't know what A-levels are, it's like when you're 18 in England, it's like your grade 12 equivalent. So oh, okay. art was my fourth A-level. And... Uh, Anyway, I haven't painted I haven't drawn in I think 10 years but last week Christiana my my sweet angel cupcake said okay we're going to paint we're going to start painting we're going to start you she said do you want to paint or do you want to draw I said I'd like to paint where are your paints and she said it's a dad's house so we had to do a drive-by <laughs> all the way to his house and pick up her easel which had spiders all over but that's another story and she had some some um oil paints in, in my my house in my house so we've been painting and my success is I painted I'm showing my team da, 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 da. I painted I love it. piece which is of a um a view of St. Lucia looking out from the beach uh-huh. into the in St. Lucia. And I gotta tell you, it was the best thing I could have done for myself. Ah. And so my success is I painted a little canvas of an oil of St. Lucia at the beach is what I'm gonna call it.
2: I love (laughs) how specific you are like it's st lucia it's yeah. not just any beach no like no. i have never thought of i don't really paint but like when i have i've never thought about that i'm like oh it's a beach forget it
0: but i love the specificity it is it had to be it had to be because <laughs> i i have a love affair with st lucia so it's all, good. Got it. <laughs> it's
1: all good um okay gratitude so my gratitude is that it was my birthday on last week. And I, I had like an absolutely wonderful day. Uh, Mm -hmm. It started the night before where I was told I had to go upstairs and uh, do something with my time so that um, they could obviously like decorate downstairs. And so I came upstairs and there was like a bath being drawn. There was candles all around the bath. There was like wine and, and like a full bottle in like a, ice bucket and my book was set up there and all that stuff so i got to spend like i don't know like two hours in the bath and then yeah and then um i got to like watch some tv by myself and whatever and then went to bed and then when i woke up in the morning uh i was i was pulled downstairs and i was blindfolded and uh anyway when i came downstairs Um, there was like a big brunch set before me, kind of thing, and I also got to see Amanda's face, and Kara's face, and Nicole's face. And they, um, you know, celebrated my happy birthday breakfast, and then
2: on Zoom, just to be clear,
1: (laughs) yes, on Zoom. Sorry, yes, on Zoom. (laughs) And then um, the team had made like a video for me. So I got to then see the whole team, including NECA and everybody's birthday wishes for me. Um, And I got to watch it with them on Zoom. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that was really cool. And then uh, after that, uh, the boys had set up like a, a, a wine tour, like in the house. And so they set up like all the food pairings uh, for each wine. And there was like six wines to try. And anyway, yeah, it was just, it was really good. I got a vegan cake. Um, what else did I get? i We had like so much fun. Uh, we wow. played some games that I got and then it ended off with being blindfolded again in a totally different way.
0: Hello, <laughs>
1: I don't know what that means now they've been on the podcast
2: <laughs> we are
0: here for that we are here for all of that good girl it was happy birthday happy happy, happy birthday I'm, I'm really glad it was fantastic because there's always a worry right for all everybody who has events birthdays weddings my darling amanda weddings my darling ellen who is going to be on the podcast in a minute what well, the the COVID um, physical distancing is going to mean, but I'm really happy that they took time and really celebrated you because you bloody well deserve it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank my you. My gratitude is it's and tedious. Drum roll. Who is it for? You guessed it. <laughs> one of the three. One of my three wishes. And it's, again, it's actually to Christiana because I talk about who is my quarantine partner, who's my... <laughs> Who is the best quarantine person in the world. And it has to be Christy. Aww. Because she is so, I, I, I just don't know what I would do with, if it wasn't her. Right? Aww. <laughs> so she doesn't have a lot of money, but she will say to me, Look, you're not cooking today. I've got $75 we're going to order in. We're going to do an Uber Eats because we drivers drive deserve. And then she will order something and then we'll sit and watch the Orville or something ridiculous like that. So I just feel so grateful that I have people in my life who are really centered around me, because it's all about me, right, centered around me, but who are so kind and generous and, you know, just beautiful. So my gratitude is to my beautiful third wish, Christiana, who I I just don't know what I would have done in COVID crisis without her. Ah,
1: that is so sweet. It's that is true. So <laughs> yeah, and great. I I don't know when this is coming out, but I want to wish Neka a a a happy Mother's Day this weekend.
2: Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. And you. all the moms out there, my goodness,
0: I, I, all the mothers. I'm here for that. I'm here for all of that. And you, bloody well, better wish me a happy Mother's Day.
2: That is <laughs> like a mother to all of us as well. My goodness, she's a mother. There we to go. All. There we go. Cheers. <laughs> cheers.
1: Cheers. But a mother, a mother we can party with in Cuba, yeah. and we'll like yeah. get a little yeah. crazy with. Yeah.
0: yeah. I'm, I'm here for that. I am here. For, I am here for that. I'm here for that. You, you are the daughters who will not who would actually set me up on Instagram because my other two would not. Mm. Yeah, we're
2: the ones that are going to be like, here, have more wine, get on Instagram. Thank you. Both together because that might be fun. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you.
1: And what's so special about today is you're going to be a mother-in-law to our next guest.
0: I am. I am. I love this young woman so much. So we're going to be meeting the incomparable Ellen Kaufman who is engaged to my incomparable sunshine, Alexander. And you're going to hear about the amazing work that Ellen is doing as part of her PhD. So stay tuned.
2: Welcome, Ellen.
0: so excited today because we have the most wonderful wonderful guest surprise for all of you I've been talking about her all the time Um, my lovely 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 son Alexander my sunshine's fiance who is equally delicious Ellen, is going to be joining us today to talk about the work that she's doing her life and everything that is awesome welcome.
3: (laughs) welcome Ellen Thank you. I'm very, very excited to be here.
0: Well, we um, it took us a, a minute to sort of figure out how we're going to continue the the podcast with the COVID that's still, still, still happening. But we're happy to note that uh, Zoom has been a very good friend of ours. The quality hasn't been really bad, has it? No. But um, this has been really, really good. So, so we're going to really, really get into a great conversation um, with Ellen and. I've known you for, when did you and Alexander start dating?
3: Um, I guess that was spring of uh, 2017, yeah.
0: 2017, why don't you tell our listeners how you two met?
3: Oh my gosh, (laughs) he's not going to be happy about this. Uh, uh, Yeah, so I guess this also leads into sort of what I'm doing now, but um, so Alex and I met at Georgetown University um, in an interdisciplinary master's program in communication, culture and technology. Um, wow. And uh, we were there for two years. Um, Alex was much more interested in sort of the business side of artificial intelligence, and what I've always been interested in is more of the um, social, cultural, and ethical implications of these technologies. Um, so even though we were in the same program, we were sort of, um, sort of studying the same things, uh, sort of not. Um, but uh, yeah, the we met this program, and the rest is history. The <laughs> rest. <laughs>
0: And, and even even before you and I met, um, because he never, t- he never tells me anything. He tells everything to his sisters. He never tells me anything. But Chrissy had told me, um, Alera had told me. And so I was really, really excited. And the summer that you came, and we spent that time in the rooftop drinking Chardonnay, I thought, <laughs> perfect. She is, and I, I say this all the time, if I could pick a perfect partner for my son, it would be you. Oh. Have you guys not heard this? Have yeah. I not said
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Because I love you very, very much. And anyway, the, the, the people will realize why in a minute. Oh why goodness. don't you, Ellen, tell us the background of your, your PhD? How you sure. got into it?
3: Um, OK, so uh, yeah, as I said, uh, my master's was in communication, culture, and technology. Um, pretty soon after I got to the program, um, I, I, I come to this specific program because what I was interested in studying broadly, um, were sort of the, the ethics of how technology um, interacts with our relationships. So at the time, I thought I was really going to study online dating and those types of platforms. Um, but uh, pretty quickly, I was encouraged to sort of pursue the actual projects that I really wanted to um, uh, dive deep. Um, into and uh, at the time I think I sort of jokingly asked a professor if um, I could write about the socio-technical systems that um, uh, sex technologies like um, vibrators and uh, wi-fi enabled sex toys fall into and sort of the um, privacy implications the ethical implications of these types of technologies and I totally got the green light on it and sort of um, that was uh, I think the the entry point into um, my studying of sex tech really seriously. And, um, for, uh, the capstone of our program, um, we have an option of doing a senior thesis. And so, uh, my senior thesis focused on emerging sex robot technology, which I mean, I could talk for hours about that. Um, <laughs> we can get into that. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, sex robots are just sort of one technology that exists in this, um, huge landscape of sex technology. So, I finished my master's there um, and was encouraged to apply for a Ph.D. So for the last two years, um, I've been a doctoral student at Indiana University um, where I'm a Ph.D. student in informatics, but I'm also a graduate research assistant at the Kinsey Institute, um, where I do research specifically on sex technology with a bunch of uh, amazing researchers there. And um, so the way that I describe my research now is that Basically I'm interested in how technology mediates um, our intimate experiences, both in commercial context, so as it relates to erotic labor, and then in um, non-commercial context, so with um, in real life relationships, I'm not to suggest that uh, these commercial spaces aren't real, but that, um, that they're not inherently transactional. Um, and uh, as well as the relationships that are developing between people and um, artificial sociosexual entities, which is just a very convoluted way of saying <laughs> like sex robots and uh, sexual chatbots.
0: That's interesting. I got I got to share very quickly. So at their graduation, we all went to um, the graduation ceremony, and there was like a thousand students graduating from Georgetown, both undergrad um, and uh, grad students. And their book, the graduate book, Ellen's thesis was actually uh, was written there. Your your dissertation title was written there, and your mother and I were giggling.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: tell tell everybody what what your your dissertation title was oh was your God. thesis title. Um,
3: yeah, I think I guess it was. Uh, oh no, no, I can't I can't remember it. <laughs> um, uh, I think it was. It was a play on the um, sex Lies and videotape, but essentially it was about, um, it, I think it had in the title, like implications of relationships with um, uh, artificially intelligent partners. Um, so it was pretty clear uh, what it what it was. What it was about. about. <laughs> yeah, I, know I had a bunch of my friend's parents say like, I don't, what, what did that look like? <laughs> I was happy to share it with them.
0: It was hilarious. It was brilliant, it was brilliant. So in terms, so you talked about sort of the the landscape, and and you said you're working with some pretty cool researchers. I think this is a really good spot to shout out some of the people that you're working with because I I, I am utterly utterly fascinated by this area.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I um I mean I my shout out would be to uh, so I I'm in a lab um, at Kinsey under um, Dr. Justin Garcia and Dr. Amanda Gesselman. And um, Amanda is the PI of a um, sex tech study that we did um, last summer. And that is an ongoing project that I can talk about a little bit, but because um, most of the, the work that we've done is um, pre-manuscript, I can only sort of, I can't um, get it too deep into the weeds of that, but right. I'm really happy to talk about that. Um, but they're both such incredible mentors in this space. Um, and like, I am insanely lucky to be working with them. Um, and so, uh, I've been working on a team with them, um, as well as, uh, Alexa Marcotte and uh, Tanya Reynolds, who are also postdoc researchers at Kinsey, um, who share this interest in sex technology as well. So it really feels like we're sort of, um, uh, on the frontier of, of this type of academic research. And it's just really, really exciting.
0: Yeah. Cause I, I don't think there's a lot of people working in this area. Are there? I think,
3: yeah. I mean, historically there have been. There have been different pockets of this research that have emerged. So um, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of research on sexting um, as a, a, a sex tech behavior. Um, there, there's been definitely interest there, and there have been a number of studies there. Um, obviously, one of the most prevalent forms of sex tech is pornography, and online pornography is something that's been studied um, now for decades. Um, so there's a lot of research there, but um, specifically, looking at this interaction between um, sexual behavior and uh, social robotics. Um, there, certainly, there are, um, there are people who have done this work, but it's not necessarily a, um, a, a well defined field. Right. But um, yeah, but there are, there are a number of us who are really interested in this and um, are doing our best to try to keep pushing this to the forefront of
0: um,
3: this type of academic research. Beautiful.
1: It sounds so interesting. Yeah. It really is. I know like I know you're gonna talk a lot about the the positives that you can see in this research as well as like maybe the consequences. But before we get to that, can you maybe like tell us a bit of like the terminology that you use? I know you just said one, erotic labor, and we talk a lot about language on this podcast and why it's so important. And so I even wrote erotic labor down. Can you kind of tell us a bit about like the different I guess terminology that you're gonna use and why it's important to use that terminology.
3: Yeah absolutely um, yeah so the I think one of the things that's that is um, uh, it's something that absolutely it should obviously should not be overlooked in, in any research but something that's so critical to this academic space is it's politics um, and like the in the language here as in other contexts is highly political so um, because a lot of the the research um, that's been done here um, comes out of sex worker spaces, um, as i said the the academic research is somewhat limited, but um, that's not in any way to undermine the 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 research that's been done and the and the work that's been done by sex workers in this in this space. Um, because of that, there are uh, this language has been negotiated um, uh, for, for quite some time and um, I, my understanding is that it's a matter of personal preference um, in, in lots of cases. Um, for example, like the, the word whore has been reclaimed um, in, in certain sex worker contexts, in others it still remains um, somewhat controversial. So I wouldn't wanna speak for anybody in their, their personal, um, Uh, approach to um, using those terms. But um, from an academic perspective, uh, I use sex work and erotic labor um, pretty interchangeably, but um, I think uh, I I prefer erotic labor because um, I think it uh, more closely encapsulates um, all of the different facets of this work um, and this very legitimate work. So um, I think that when when people hear sex work, they assume that that, what that means is that it's entirely, Uh, it's entirely defined by sexual behavior whereas like much of what erotic labor is is emotional labor and so um, I personally use erotic labor um, because I do think it's a it's a more all-encapsulating term but um, uh, this is it's definitely a space that's um, uh, been negotiated and I think probably will be continued to be renegotiated
0: Wow I know Oh, I know, and, and as you were talking about uh, erotic labour and how, to me, it seemed almost a contradiction in terms. But then that's because I'm I'm, my generation, that you could have um, technology, i.e., devices that then have emotional connection that people have emotional connectivity with. And so, I think I think the idea of sort of this eroticization and sexuality is to show that it's more than a physical, a physiological re- response, that there's emotional um, attributions to, to be had to it as, as well, right?
3: right? Right, yeah. And I mean, those are the kinds of things that we've um, already found in our study in terms of, um, we were looking at, uh, so we did this nationally representative survey um, of sex tech use and behaviors. Um, and one of the things that we found is focusing specifically on, um, online webcam modeling um, is that i uh, th- i think contrary to um the to, to this this idea that you sort of addressed here which is that like people are only using these technologies for sexual gratification we're fi- we were finding that um people who have uh multiple visits to the same um model report feelings of emotional connection um mm-hmm. with the model um their uh reported levels of social support outside of um Uh, outside of their online relationships are pretty similar to people who don't, um, use tech or don't access, um, online, um, model,
0: uh, streams. Let's go back to the, the conversation around language. So what are, what are sort of the acronyms and terminologies that are prevalent in the sector that, you know, our listeners should be aware of?
3: Sure. I mean, the thing about this is, it's just, it's true. Like, I think you don't, I don't want to speak for other people. And so like, and the, I, as much as I believe that this, this work, um, should be sex worker focused, I'm not a sex worker. So I don't feel like I'm not going to say that like this language is appropriate or this language isn't. It's like I said, it's a, I think, um, it's really important to recognize like your, your positionality in all of this.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And that's perfect.
3: Um, yeah. So, sex tech obviously is just a portmanteau of sexuality and technologies or um, sex technologies. And I would be absolutely remiss at this point to not mention Cindy Gallup, who is the person who coined the term sex tech. Um, she's also the founder of Make Love Not Porn, which is an amazing sex tech platform. Um, I am deeply obsessed with her and all of her work and I cannot recommend following her on Twitter enough because she is uh, always discussing what's new in this space. Um, She's just, she's incredible. (laughs) Um, And uh, the way that I would describe sex tech um, are just technologies that we um, use to mediate or enhance our sexuality, our sexual expression, or our sexual experiences. Um, Because ultimately technologies are just things that we use to do other things. Um, right. So whether they're used for sex- sexual purposes or in our sexual lives, um, they help us a- achieve those goals. Um, something else that, that I have also mentioned um, at this point, uh, I think our um, uh, camming or webcam modeling is something that um, uh, certainly uh, exists in the sex tech landscape and is now particularly in this moment, this um, within this pandemic and this COVID moment, um, has come to the to the front of the public consciousness because um, a lot of uh, in real life sex work isn't possible um, due to the uh, the safety constraints and concerns of, of the pandemic. So um, a lot of erotic laborers have had to transition to online work, um, and uh, and this is actually uh, it's it's created. Um, some of a, a somewhat of a bottleneck because um, that market is now hugely oversaturated with um, mm-hmm. new workers um, who don't have experience using these tools um, there's an assumption that uh, it's I, and I, actually the, the the irony is that this has nothing to do with um, or really, it's not confined just to the sexual space, but like you see universities trying to take classes online, assuming that you all you have to do is just take the class and put it online, and now it's exactly the same thing. And you have sort of the same experience happening with this change from in real life sex work to camming, where um, wherein you have a lot of new people who assume that it's just it's it's easy, but uh, the realities of it are far different. So, um, and and I guess to actually define webcam modeling or camming, um, it's a form of erotic labor in which um, performers live broadcast their show over a webcam. um, And that's often using a platform like Live Jasmine or um, Chatterbait uh, or MyFreeCams that um, they they host the shows. Um, Sort of the platforms almost look like YouTube where you would see um, all of the available shows that are um, being uh, presented to you based on an algorithm and then um, the platform itself takes, um, some percentage of the, um, the total, uh, revenue and then distributes it to the, um, workers.
0: Oh, wow. Ellen,
1: can I ask a quick question? When we talk about sexuality a lot, we talk about shame and how shame, mm-hmm. how we're taught to shame sexuality a lot of the time. And I'm wondering if you find this in technology, like does technology take out the shame in any way or does it eliminate it or even soften it? And how is the shame, like, is there still shame and is it still expressed through these technological spaces? Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that's, that's sort of the, um, one of the most frustrating paradoxes of this, this type of technology is that, um, these Technologies, uh, in theory, can facilitate sexual expression without shame. Like they're at their at their um, best in, in their best manifestation, they um, th- they're providing people with opportunities to explore aspects of their sexuality um, uh, with their partners in long distance relationships, um, to uh, explore desires that um, that maybe they have outside of those relationships. Um, and uh, I think something as as um, simple as sexting or um, uh, it's like sending erotic photos of yourself to your partner, um, those are opportunities for you to have um, a, an assertion of your sexual agency, um, an identity that like that can be totally without shame. I think that. But what's frustrating is that these platforms aren't designed to do that. The platforms that the, the um, they exist within, as you've said, this this. Uh, cultural context of um, stigmatization and shame that um, mean that uh, at some point, at any point really, the the platform can reinstate that level of shame on the behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, So like an example of that would be that um, you can be exchanging consensual images um, with a partner and uh, your partner could then non-consensually share that um, content online. And so you have this, the context changing um, based on this lack of consent. And, and then, that, then at that point, the platform is not prepared um, to be held accountable for that behavior.
0: And then, well, the question there is, where does accountability actually lie? Is it with the, the, the facilitators of the platform, the creators of the platform, or the individual who is sharing, or both? And, and how does how do you hold individuals accountable as well as hold platform creators who are, it's business it's business right. for them
3: uh, yeah absolutely um yeah and i mean i think that the something that i find um absolutely ridiculous uh is that um we put this impetus on survivors to be the ones to submit takedowns to the um platforms asking to have that content removed um or having to to um, contact their abuser and um, and ask to not not continue to share that content without their permission. I mean, I, that's I think that's egregious. Um, that that we uh, that we put survivors in that situation. Um, yeah. So but yeah, they, so the accountability um, definitely falls on uh, it falls on the platforms and it it falls on us to educate um, people not to, to be sharing content non consensually. Um, I mean, it, it falls on us to educate people about consent in a way that's meaningful um, and to understand how that fits in this um, larger web of new tools that uh, can be used for these forms of um, sexual
0: violence. Yeah, and, and yeah, to, to, to continue, sorry Amanda, to continue with the sort of the negatives uh, implications of this technology, the, the, the fact that it can be disseminated so quickly and so widely, mm-hmm. just aggravates the the trauma and 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 the violence, right, to to the survival the 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 victim of that that type of crime. And so, are are these platform developers putting in um, tools and strategies to curtail, right, how this information is shared?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> So they are, um, but I think what we need to ask questions about are um, if these are the right tools that they're putting into place. Um, So in the United States, um, there was legislation that was passed in 2018. um, uh, The acronym is SESTA-FOSTA. And essentially what this uh, legislation on its face um, was designed to do was to curb human trafficking online. Mm -hmm. Um, So what uh, SESTA-FOSTA addresses is, Uh, section 230 um, of uh, a a, um, earlier piece of legislation um, that essentially uh, makes platforms responsible for content that could be suggestive of human trafficking. Um, And it's retroactive as well. So um, this is the kind of legislation that, uh, again, on its surface, seems to be designed to address this type of image-based sexual violence, um, because it uh, it gives law enforcement the ability to um, actually hold the platforms accountable. In reality, and uh, in, in the lead up to this legislation passing, um, the, there was a tremendous amount of pushback um, from uh, sex workers in particular, um, who identified uh, how this would and wouldn't actually um, Uh, help uh, curb human trafficking and how it would actually exacerbate violence against sex workers um, and others who um, express uh, their sexuality online. And and, um, since it's been passed, uh, basically that has been the result um, of this legislation in that um, various communities that were used to ensure the safety of sex workers have been um, removed from the internet, um, which uh, obviously makes in real life sex work much more um, dangerous and um more specifically it's given these platforms free license to move the goalposts um for what they consider content that could be sexually suggestive of uh, or content that could be suggestive of um human trafficking and content that isn't um and so what that actually looks like is um Uh, people who are sex educators on YouTube have their content demonetized so they can't use their content for, um, they can't advertise in their um, content. What that looks like is that um, sex workers are shadow banned from um, these social media platforms so they are effectively kicked off the platform without a um, justification. But it also looks like uh, sex workers not being able to use money processing platforms like PayPal. Um, all because their content is quote sexually suggestive. Um, so in so in reality, what it does is it um, and to to return to your point about shame, uh, Shalina, it, what it does is it reinstates this um, this culture of shame around expressions of sexuality that don't match um, what uh, the, what the powers that be within these platforms deem appropriate forms of sexuality.
0: So who gets to determine what is um who gets to define what is appropriate
3: so you have um all these platforms because uh they they have more content uploaded to them every day than they could possibly look through um manually um most content moderation on social media platforms is a combination of human moderators um and algorithmic moderators so these are um machine learning processes that are trained with rules about what's appropriate and what isn't. And so they will automatically take down certain content um, without having to be approved by a human moderator. The human moderators are essentially the trainers for the algorithmic processes. Um, and so uh, you have after SESTA-FOSTA and um, these platforms were really concerned that they were going to be, um, uh, that they were going to be singled out for Potentially hosting human trafficking as a result of having sexually suggestive content, um, particularly on Facebook uh, and on Instagram, which is a product of Facebook. Um, you had the goalposts change from uh, the kinds of content that are that are not acceptable or sexually explicit, um, visual content or descriptive content, um, to anything that just sort of was generally sexually suggestive. Are you um, serious? Yeah. So what, so what that actually looks like is that you have these human content moderators who, by the way, are experiencing unbelievable levels of trauma on their own doing this work of um, being paid next to nothing to watch hours and hours and hours of um, deeply disturbing graphic content to, to train the algorithms. Um, so you have those people who are working under these unbelievably traumatic conditions who have to just sort of based on their subjectivity, decide that this image is uh, sexually suggestive and this one isn't. So, um, it's practically what that looks like is if there's nudity, um, it's taken down. If there, regardless of the context, if there's sexually explicit content that is um, it, 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 that is educational, it's taken down. Wow. Is that, I guess, where we see like, um
1: like where there was that uproar of women like breastfeeding and then all of a sudden that was taken down so how does this i guess like how does sex and technology kind of interact with censorship and how do you kind of like move past the censorship or or do you is it possible to
3: yeah i mean right i think that that's sort of the um (laughs) like the million dollar question because um i think there has been um there's been an acknowledgement amongst um, people within the sex tech community that these tools are too limited to actually um, uh, to, to bring about the type of equitable expressions of sexuality that we we believe um, that people deserve. And so uh, I think part one of the the um, measures that I think uh, you see coming out of um, these communities, and, and in particular, I want to shout out the women of sex tech community who did an amazing virtual conference last Saturday. And this is just this international community of um, uh, of folks who are sex educators, sex workers, um, sex technologists, uh, who are all thinking about these exact questions. Um, and so some of them are, um, in the process of designing new platforms that don't have, um, these same types of, um, censorship, uh, but, but I mean, but, a lar- but also a larger part of it is advocacy. Um, and and so d- design is definitely a part of it. And um, I think sex worker focused design, sex worker centered design is is absolutely key to it. But um, that's not to um, also undermine the work that um, advocacy groups have done to push these platforms um, for uh, more accountability um, and more consistency and tran- and transparency in terms of the decisions that they're making. Mm-hmm. Can I have, I have
0: a question? Oh, sorry. Yeah, No, 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 lovely. After you,
3: Amanda. <laughs> I was just going to ask, kind of
2: going back to when you were talking about accountability, I'm wondering, especially for like people listening that like may use things like this, like are just people that are interested in this, like where does accountability fall when you're thinking about the people viewing it? Like are viewers accountable? Because it's like if something's being posted without consent, mm-hmm. like how are then viewers accountable to like know that what they're watching or what they're viewing online was posted consensually. Is it like a safe site to use? Like, how, like how how do conversations like that kind of happen in that space? Yeah.
3: Um, again, I think I would point people to the Women of Sex Tech group. Um, there are uh, folks in that group who are doing, especially in terms of sex education um, work, where they are um, aggregating. Uh, these spaces online um, that have sort of passed these these te- these more um, rigorous ethical tests in terms of where the content is coming from, um, a space that's sort of uh, I think. Um, it's something that's been contested are these spaces of ethical pornography um, not I think so in the same way that we see sort of um, sustain, uh, these terms of sustainability and ethics applied to other consumer spaces just because something is labeled ethical doesn't mean that it's necessarily ethical which is why um, the, the like some of those folks have done incredible work um, in terms of interrogating whether these um, websites actually are meeting those those standards um, so there's like there's certainly um, Resources for thinking through how you ethically consume this content, um, but I mean, but a, but a larger part of it also is, is that these platforms, um, these platforms are designed to enable uh, the um, users to hold the platforms accountable. Um, unfortunately that's often used um, for abuse so you have people who use the the reporting um, affordances of these um, platforms to uh, target sex workers who to, to de platform sex workers at the same time the, there are the the same opportunities for um, uh, advocating for sex workers through reporting non-consensual content for reporting people who are um, perpetrating the same types of um image-based sexual violence over and over again it's it's it, like it, there are certainly not any easy answers there but um especially in the advocacy spaces these are the things that are being discussed really seriously
0: that's brilliant, that's brilliant. i'm interested in in the intersection of the law and sex tech mm. because i mean you talked about the what do you call it the sester foster Yep. Which is, it has legal ramifications, legal consequences. But yep. the challenge is there is a lot of violence that's being perpetrated online. There are people who are reporting, but the, the law seems to be moving at a very slow pace you know, mm-hmm. in comparison to, to the technology. So I, I don't know whether, and you may not know this, but are there people who are working at that intersection of law, technology, and oh, yeah,
3: absolutely. Um, there's a, a, um, a law firm in New York City. Um, the, the lawyer's name is Carrie Goldberg, um, and she and her, um, her team have done tremendous work in this space um, and, and have really grappled with a lot of um, these questions about um, image-based sexual violence and how that intersects with um, larger legislation. So shout out to them. Um, mm-hmm. Extremely, extremely good work um, in that area. Brilliant, brilliant. Can,
1: you just mentioned like online sexual violence and can you just talk about the validity of that? Because I know a lot of people will hear what you're saying and say, well, you guys weren't in the same room or it's not this like typical story that we hear that sexual violence is. So can you, can you talk a little bit about the validity of online sexual violence? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, I, mean I, I first of all, I would just say that this isn't necessarily my area of research, so I don't want to be, I don't want to overstep too far in terms of um, talking about my authority in this space, but I do think um, that, uh, that what we see is that um, this is a, a more prevalent form of um, sexual violence than we've ever seen um, because of the tools that exist now to perpetrate these forms of sexual violence. Um, often, I think this, um, this is a space where, uh, a lack, sort of a lack of digital literacy broadly, um, mm-hmm. means that, uh, there is a layer of shame that's, um, that, that is certainly present in this type of, uh, in this type of sexual violence, um, that doesn't really have, um, uh, there, there really isn't any, any recourse for it, um, uh, in the sense that, um, often, uh, be, especially because um, sexting and um, some of this content happens um, with underage uh, um, yeah. uh, users, um, the because of the how the law um, is and isn't uh, well suited for dealing with issue with um, is, issues related to digital platforms. Um, if you create the content um, and you are underage then you've created child pornography, um, mm-hmm. and so as a result. Um, I think what sort of distinguishes um, this type of sexual violence uh, or maybe complicates this type of sexual violence is that often the survivors are also labeled as perpetrators.
0: Yep. Yep. It reminds me of, uh, there was a a show that we watched with um, Zendaya. Oh, Euphoria? Euphoria, yes. Where the, the, the guy was accusing... Right. Of uh, uh, you know that because she sent him, she texted him some images. Mm-hmm. He was saying, "I'm going to report you, and you're going to be
3: labelled right. as a right.
0: as a sexual predator or, or something." And and that that is worrisome because again, it's about consenting individuals sharing infa- uh, images of themselves freely. But right. where it becomes problematic is when the law sort of applies this very heavy mallet to everybody.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's 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 hard. Right.
3: Yeah, but I think certainly, again, um, I can't uh, overemphasize how important sex education is in this context. And I think, I mean, in I, I don't know what it's like in um, Canada, but in the United States, certainly we see these these programs being gutted, um, and when they need to be more prevalent, probably um, uh, the same. In, in it's the
0: same. It, it's the same in Canada as it is in in the U.S. Because in Ontario, we had—I mean, Shalina can talk about this. We, we we addressed this before, but the 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 whole consent curriculum was removed mm-hmm. right from from schools, and so yeah, it's a worry. It's a huge worry, and it is another area for advocacy that we we really need to amp up. I'm sorry, Shalina, you were going to say something?
1: No, it's, I I find that it's dependent on the political party, right? So, uh, like, in our case in Ontario, the Liberals, yeah, made, like, very up-to-date consent kind of sex education. And then as soon as um, uh, the Conservatives came in, it was, again, wiped. And it went back to, like, 1994 or something, which the the big talk, like, the big discussion was the fact that in 1994, they didn't talk about anything online, right? Where sh- hers, I guess, like Wins, kind of had talked about that. And and that's why, that's what you're talking about, that it's so important to have that kind of um, lens on it.
3: Right, because yeah, I mean, I think this is, uh, again, like the, you have this technology that can be used um, for sexual expression, um, to assert sexual agency. Um, it can be used in these really positive ways, but they're, um, I think like this, is, and this is, this is true sort of for anything related to technology, like the users don't own the technology. Um, and that's that we don't teach that sort of digital literacy in any way, um, in terms of the content that we, we create using these platforms. Um, I mean, so that, that you just never, until sort of, we, we seize these mechanisms of, of control and we're, we're creating these platforms, um, that have those ethics baked into them. Um, and then we're, I think, unfortunately, we'll see over and over again that the platform's always going to choose monetization over um, justice, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Wow. that's that's, that's a good uh, that's a good title, Amanda.
0: Right?
3: <laughs> I literally
1: was
0: like, <laughs> I like that. Oh. Well, it, it's it's a really beautiful segue into some of the positives, right? Uh, the, how the technology can actually mediate positive. Uh, right. sexual experiences so why don't you tell us what you've been doing in this area
3: sure so yeah as i said as i mentioned earlier um so we did this uh this survey of sex tech use um and uh, i do think it's important um to touch on the impact um uh of using these technologies in terms of um expressing one's sexual identity in terms of meeting sexual desires um the fact that we found that uh i think one in 3 um uh, participants in the survey who, who um, regularly visited these cam model um, websites felt an emotional connection with um, the performer um, I think is is really promising in terms of um, the type of meaningful relationships that can come out of using these types of um, uh, sex tech um, but more uh, more specifically I think uh, there, there are actually a number of studies that are ongoing right now. Um, the the folks who I work with at Kinsey are doing a study about love and sex and relationships in COVID. Um, there are a number of other labs that are doing um, similar research and looking at how what people are essentially doing um, in terms of their sexual and romantic behaviors at home during the pandemic. Um, and, and sex technologies can be hugely beneficial um, in terms of, uh, exploring um, different aspects of relationships um, try testing out new behaviors uh, I think that they're the, the cool thing about technologies the wonderful thing about technologies is they always introduce new opportunities um, and so uh, I, I can't speak to the results of those um, of those studies uh, but um, I do think that they uh, provide us with an opportunity not only for exploring in real life um, Uh, different desires, but um, I think they're also critical in terms of um, maintaining these intimate relationships long distance Um, and we're seeing that not only in sexual relationships, but in um, intimate relationships that between um, family and friends uh, where these sort of simple telecommunication technologies um, become so crucial uh, in terms of meeting that critical need for companionship. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I have a question around um, sex dolls sure (laughs) (laughs) because as as we're talking about the positive impacts and i i read and i i would see things on on twitter and stuff and i'll send it to ellen all the bloody time (laughs) and uh, there was one article i sent you a couple of months ago about um the way sex dolls have sort of in some communities and in some countries have surpassed human contact. Mm -hmm. And so are are you finding or is there research being done in this area of of the replacement of human women Mm -hmm. with uh, sex robots?
3: Yeah, so the the thing about... The thing about that is, is that Ellen's I
0: think smiling that right now. <laughs> I, th- I
3: I truly think that no anxiety has captured the human imagination more than the idea that like, sex robots are going to replace people. Um, yeah. I think that you. This is. It's sort of like it's this question that I get asked over and over again, um, and uh, I think it. The 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 first thing about it, this this question is. Um, it's sort of like existentially, it's sort of a, um, it's a ridiculous question to ask at this point, because like sex robots in a widely available manner don't exist. Mm -hmm. Like there, even, even sex dolls are still a um, incredibly niche market. And so the, the, the concern that people have, and and this is where um, I think that there's a, key distinction to be made between sex dolls, which are inanimate, and sex robots, which um, are engage, can engage with you uh, in different ways. Um, the, the concern about sex robots is that they will become so lifelike that we won't need any human partners. Um, the, from a technological standpoint, that is highly unlikely at this <laughs> moment. Um, the, like the, the sex robots that are on the market currently, um, that it, it are, uh, again, not widely in distribution, um, can cost anywhere between 10,000 and $50,000, cool. um, because they're, um, the, the technology is such an investment, um, and even then, uh, the experience of a sex robot is not anything remotely like in the experience of being with a person. Um, but again, that that this is so much of that um, work is also speculative because, again, these technologies are not widely used, so there there have not been any surveys of sex robot users because they're not this is this is not a widespread um, or uh, a um, broad community. Um, for in my master's research, what I was looking at. Um, were people who were using uh, the artificial intelligence um, technology that uh, essentially powers a sex robot. So the the company that has been at the forefront of developing sex robots um, called Abyss Creations, they've created the real doll if you're familiar with that. Um, The artificial intelligence is um, available to interact with in an app, um, and so I was looking at the different ways in which people interact with the um, uh, essentially virtual avatar that they create through the app. And then the idea is that when you have the body, you can sync the body in the, the sort of mind and personality that's that's in the artificial intelligence um, to create this sex robot. Again, people are not, re- this is not a widespread uh, sexual behavior, um, but, uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, what I found is that people were using the um, technology in totally different ways. Um, and, uh, that, um, I think it, it's safe to say that many people see this technology as a supplement to human interpersonal sexual interactions, um, as opposed to a replacement. Um, I think, uh, like certainly the, I, again, the idea has been floated amongst, um, s- certain communities that, uh, um, I think are, have, have other... Uh, other views that correspond with the idea of wanting to eliminate women, um, uh, in, in society, um, have thought about the idea of them as a replacement, but from the actual users themselves, um, I think that, uh, what we're seeing is that people, um, think about these technologies as a supplement, um, as an opportunity for those who have, um, social or sexual anxieties to, um, become comfortable with, um, uh, with sexual experiences in a way that, um, that allows them to maintain agency. Um, something that I'm really interested in is using these technologies amongst survivors, um, uh, that particularly um, uh, those who um, have experienced uh, um, trauma and, and feel um, that, uh, that the, the pathway into um, interpersonal relationships is, is um, now uh, stifled by um, that trauma. Um, but yeah, so I think we see, we see all these other opportunities to use these technologies beneficially. Um, and, and I, and that's not to say that the, the concerns, the ethical concerns about the ways that the the robots look, um, the types of personalities that they, um, are programmed to, uh, display are not in some way problematic, but, um, very, very long story short, uh, <laughs> short, very, very long answer to your question, which is that I don't think we are in any position to be worried about sex robots replacing humans at any point in the near
0: future. The <laughs> woodwives will not be moving into the neighborhood anytime soon.
3: No, I don't. I feel, I feel we are very, 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 very good on this.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: That's really important.
1: Um, I know that we're coming up to time. So I'm just wondering if there's anything that we didn't ask that you really want to share or that you want the reader to, the reader, oh my goodness, the listener to walk away from.
3: <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like I've touched on all this. I, I again, like I would, um, I think that the the sex tech space has so much room for, to improve people's lives, um, to be beneficial. Um, the, I think the tension comes uh, the often negative te- attention um, or tension comes from uh, the fact that these platforms are just not designed to facilitate facil- facilitate these types of um, uh, expressions and behaviors um, and so like that that's something that we have to address but um, at the end of the day, I think uh, we can use these technologies so beneficially um, at the conference that I um, virtually attended last weekend, um, there was a speaker. Um, who uh, defined sex tech um, as a who, not a what. Um, and this is shout out to Val Elefante. I hope I said her name right. Uh, but she describes sex tech um, She said the, to the answer of who is sex tech. She described um, sex tech as a group of people leveraging technology to reclaim and cultivate erotic power, which we use to fight against injustice. I was like, holy! holy. I could not have written that down faster um, um, because because I do think that this like that sex tech is highly political um, and it's the history of the of the technologies are highly political because. Um, there have always been cultural forces that, on one hand, want to benefit from the cachet of um, the of sexual desire um, and then uh, punish it on the other end. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think the the what I loved about this conference is that um, so many of these discussions about these technologies were sex worker centered, um, and I think we have to um defer to this this level of um, insight and expertise in terms of the design of these technologies um because often they are designed with people by people um who are not thinking about who these technologies actually impact um, who's going to be disparately impacted um, whose lived experiences are going to be enhanced and whose lived experiences are going to be diminished ellen you
1: found your people i don't know what else to say (laughs) we are here with you
0: (laughs) we are this has been absolutely absolutely wonderful and i am so so happy that you were able to join us today because again open opens minds opens hearts educates informs and couldn't have done it better without my my darling darling false wish as i call her now <laughs>
2: um,
0: so are we going to do our
1: uh check out. yeah let's do our checkout. do we want to do our wine
0: rating first yeah let's do it Okay, let's actually, because we didn't talk about what wines we're drinking, Um, I'm going to go first. Okay. I have um, a Marlborough Chardonnay called Oyster Bay from New Zealand, and I went into the LCBO thinking about um, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and the incredible work this woman has been doing. I was thinking about her the, the day before, but I went in... Looked at the, the the sort of the shells and thought, I'm going to buy a New Zealand wine because I want to sort of give a shout out to her economy. So I spent <laughs> my twenty dollars or however much this was because I think she's a rock star. And I'm also I also bought some Canadian um, wine as well, some Ontario wine. So I'm giving a shout out to Ontario wine. So it's a Chardonnay, 2018, Oyster Bay from New Zealand, Marlborough, and I am giving it a five. Out of
1: five? Whoa! Wow. <laughs> oh.
0: I am. I love this wine.
1: That's this unheard of. Unheard
0: this of. is my. These are my people. <laughs> this, I, this is my thing. Actually, in shock. Yeah. Delicious. Delicious.
1: Okay. Cheers.
0: Cheers.
1: I can go next. I am drinking a Sandbanks, and it's beach, and it's a riesling, and. I have this because it was my birthday last week. And-
0: um, Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you.
1: <laughs> and um, my partners set up a wine tasting event in our house because of COVID. Anyway, this was one of the wines. As soon as we all tasted it, it we loved it. We loved it. So um, I also give this a five. This is a five.
0: Today is a five yes. day.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, hey, Cheers. <laughs>
2: Amanda, what about you? It's so funny. I actually think I have that bottle, Shalina. So I'm like, Ooh, I'll have to <laughs> open that one. Um, I'm drinking Innis late autumn Riesling. Um, it's one of our faves. We just like, it's a go-to. I feel like it's one of the ones like we just grab it every time we're in the LCBO. Like if we were trying something new, but we just grab it cause we know we'll like it. Um, and it's like, I feel like this is I was gonna give it a 4.5, which I thought was high, but now it feels low. But <laughs> 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 I think I'm still gonna go with the 4.5. It's like a nice.
3: crowd pleaser for me.
1: Nice. Very nice. Very nice.
3: And I mean, Al- Yeah, I had to Google what it was because I fin- this was I was at the very end of this bottle and I threw it out before this started. But <laughs> I'm fairly certain that and also the the um, background to this is that um NECA was unbelievably generous to me and I came out of class um a couple of weeks ago and found on the counter that there had been a drop off of um just like a giant goodie bag of wine for me from her from the from that um it is the El Abuelo Organic Sauvignon Verdejo I have no idea what that means in terms of it was a white wine I I have no idea what that means in terms of it's anything about it but it was absolutely delicious and um, I as NECA knows I do not like sweet wine at all and it was very crisp very um, very refreshing and crisp but not sweet so I will also do it a five.
0: Wow! <laughs> yeah. wow. That was awesome. This is a five day. This is a five day. Amanda what, what's the what's the total? I mean I didn't average them out because
2: they're all individual bottles but we would be at like a four point Nine. Something real, yeah. I yeah, poor boy. I, I lowered it a tiny bit. I'm so sorry.
0: Your mecca this week, okay? Yeah, yeah, true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, and now we'll ask our checkout question. So, the question tonight is super easy. What's the best thing that you cook personally? Like, what is your favorite thing, or the best thing, or something that you've been cooking forever that you cook?
0: Hmm. That's a great question.
2: It is a really good question.
0: Who wants to go first?
1: I'll go first. Okay. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I didn't have my answer one second ago, but I thought about it. Um, I'm going to say it's a hard like toss up between like my chili and my shepherd's pie. But my shepherd's pie is like the best. I now make it vegan because they don't eat a, a ton of meat. Um, but I use sweet potato instead of potato and it like makes it so much better. And then I put like way too many vegetables, not too many, like a lot of vegetables in it. And um, it's like literally one of my favorite comfort things to eat ever. Hmm. That's I me.
0: I used to love shepherd's pie when I was at school. That was part of a staple for school dinners. I used to absolutely love it, but uh, I will come over Shalina and sample some of yours
3: okay I
0: can go I can go my favorite thing is a a um, an African dish called Jalof rice Mm. and Jalof rice is actually originally Ghanaian and Nigerians sort of try to steal it Uh, and there's this huge competition about who makes the best Jalof rice Ghanaians or Nigerians I will say it doesn't matter because mine is (laughs) <laughs> right and it's a it's a red rice so it's rice with um like tomato sauce and mine is fantastic my kids love it um i learned it from my dad so that's,
1: it's, we'll have to try that too
3: neka yeah i will
0: i will send the recipe
3: okay I'll send the recipe <laughs> Do you have yours, Ellen? Yeah. Okay. So mine, I feel like it's not a thing. I didn't come up with this, obviously. But um, this is, it's, I think, what is actually colloquially referred to as a slutty brownie. Um, and because I think okay. it's very important, again, reclaiming the word slut is very important. Um, and so uh, the, it's a, a perfect way of describing um, this dessert, which is so decadent um, and just, like, unbelievably delicious. So just, like, incredible. What it is, is it's basically... A layer of chocolate chip cookie, and then Oreos, and then brownie on top. But the brownie, as a result of like how you have to cook it all at the same time, the um the brownie is like sort of fudge like, and the the cookie is like just sort of perfect and crispy. Um, and I only it's a pain in the ass to make because it's the 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 two. Um, mixes are very sticky so it's like really it's it's kind of irritating to mix so i only make it once a year at christmas but it's absolutely <laughs> incredible and it's one of the few things that i cooked both pre-vegan and post becoming a vegan um it's all completely vegan it's absolutely delicious um i like look forward to making it and eating it all year <laughs> oh my gosh that sounds really good too you yes. look
0: very excited you look yeah. very excited amanda what about you um
2: The first thing that came to mind was stew, similar to Youneka, my dad, and always made it. And so I just like grew up eating it. And so it's a very, like, it's a comfort food. Like I'll make it sort of semi-regularly. But then as I was thinking that, I was like, I'm talking to two, now I know three vegans. This is not, (laughs) this is not appropriate to like It's just the wrong crowd. (laughs) And so not that this is better because it's still not vegan, but I actually think it's, I didn't, learn it from someone. Like I, like, I think it took bits and pieces from lots of people. I think my, like what Zach would say is probably my best is my macaroni and cheese. Oh, yeah. I put like cauliflower in it too. So it's both noodles and cauliflower and like, do, we'll sometimes do different veggies in there too, but usually just noodles and cauliflower. And then I put goldfish crackers on top as well as <laughs> cheddar cheese on top. Like instead of like breadcrumbs, I do goldfish crackers. And I don't often make it. I make it less regularly, just because it's a long process. Kind of what you were saying, Ellen. It's like a, you gotta do a whole cheese. It's just, it's, it's a lot for a regular Monday to Friday evening. Yeah. But when I make it, Zach is always like really happy.
0: <laughs> so Adorable. I think it's probably
2: like, and my mom. My mom always requests it too. It's like what I get requested most to make. So I feel like that's probably that. actually the
0: best. I love that. I absolutely love that. I love your take on the goldfish sprinkly bits (laughs) that's genius that's genius well this has been honestly one of my highlights podcasts and i am so grateful to you ellen for coming on the show and this is awesome
1: yeah (laughs) i i have more questions i think (laughs) (laughs) like so much like i'm sitting here thinking like Oh, do uh, sex robots have love languages? How does that work? <laughs> so I'm sure you will come on again and grace us with your unbelievable knowledge about this field.
3: Oh my, anytime. <laughs> hopefully in
1: person next time. Yes. Just, Indeed.
0: Indeed. Thank you, lovely.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Of course. Anytime. And-
2: I guess as we're heading out, again, if people would like to subscribe to our Patreon, the link will be in the bio, so make sure you check that out, and become a patron and support if you can.
0: It'll be lovely. And if,
1: and if you have any questions at all, email us at podcast
0: at, at com.
1: And we will see you next time. Bye!
0: Bye! Bye! Bye.